just want to start by saying that I'm going to tell you about three years of my life which um, were quite harrowing, quite horrible. Um, but I want to say right at the beginning that this is a story of hope and, uh, and what God has done by his grace and reconciliation. So although it might be quite difficult in certain parts, hold on. There's light at the end of the tunnel. It is a story of, of great hope. Uh, and my story starts, I, I guess, um, when I turn up at the gates of the Royal Military Academy, Sandhurst. Um, I had always wanted to be in the army. I actually wanted to fly. And uh, the army were going to give me an opportunity to do that. So we went through the gates of Sandhurst and uh, I started my career in the army. When I got out of the car, my mum gave me something. It was a little book. It's called Living Light. Some of you might know that. It's just a little devotional book with some verses in the morning and some verses in the evening. And, and you know, at that time, I was living in the light. I was putting God first. Uh, I was spending time with him in the morning. I made my own commitment that I wanted to be a servant of Christ. Um, I came from a big family, six brothers and sisters. Uh, and my mum, who at the time... Um, had quite a prominent Christian ministry. I think actually she's spoken here, and maybe some of you will have, would have heard of my mum, Jen. Um, but I had to make my own decision um, where I stood, Christian-wise. And I'd chosen to follow Christ. And after a few days at Sandhurst, I had an opportunity to make a bit of a stand. Uh, on the notice board at the, um, where we were, our company lines, uh, there was a, ca- a crowd gathered after a couple of days of being at Sandhurst. And they were all looking at the notice board. And I thought, I better go and have a look and see what they're looking at. And there was a little note at the bottom of the notice board saying, Academy Rugby Trials. If you get selected for the first 15, you get Wednesdays off training. So myself and all 411 people in my intake turned up for the rugby trials. The rugby trials were on the Saturday. uh, And I loved rugby and I played quite well. Um, But because there were so many of us, they asked us, a few of us, to come back the next day where they'd select the team to play on the next Wednesday. And I was one of those people. But I thought about what I should do pretty much through that night. And the next morning I turned up and I stood at attention in front of this big colonel who was taller than me, had bushy side brows, and, and he even had a monocle. And I said to him, sir, I cannot play rugby tomorrow. I'm a Christian. I want to go to chapel. And he didn't bite my head off. At Sandhurst, you're not meant to do anything that makes you stand out you're not meant to do anything badly you're really not meant to do anything well either just be a gray man disappear and everything will go okay and here I was making a bit of a stand for my faith but he let me go to chapel and in fact the next day uh, I discovered that I had been selected to play in uh, the team that were due to play on the Wednesday but not to play in the starting 15 I was going to be reserved in the bench the person in my position got injured after about two minutes uh, and I got on to play. Do you know, I played the best game of rugby I've ever played. And within a couple of weeks, um, I'd been asked if I could be the captain of the academy first 15, which is quite an honour. Now, the general, the commandant, loved his rugby. And I think I must have been the only officer cadet he actually knew by name. Because at the end of my time at Sandhurst, he asked me um, or awarded me with the Queen's Sword of Honour for graduating at the top of my intake. Now, my career in the army was mapped out. A sort of honour winner at the Royal Military Academy uh, is someone who's going to go places. Um, But I had a bit of a reality check pretty much soon after I left Sandhurst. I went to start my flying training um, and I discovered a slight problem. I couldn't actually land. (laughs) 
and it is quite important when you're learning to fly that you can land. So um, after another near miss, the commanding officer called me and he said, Justin, before you kill yourself or someone else, you need to find another career. So I was dealing with a few anger issues at the time and I decided to join the Royal Artillery because someone had told me they shot aeroplanes down uh, and that made me feel much better. So I actually went um, quite soon after that time off to uh, six months in South Armagh uh, and then to an operational tour in Bosnia. And for a while, for about two months, I was the youngest major in the British Army and things were going quite well. But you know what? I was restless. I was never content. I was never happy with what I was doing. I was always thinking about the next thing I needed to try and achieve. And when someone said to me, I wouldn't get promotion to to Lieutenant Colonel for another six years, I decided to leave the army, age 30, and I went off to the city. And I went from leading 460 people on a high-pressure operational tour in Bosnia to being the junior T-boy in an insurance company. Uh, And believe me, I was the junior boy. I knew nothing about the world of finance or insurance or business. But I did know how to speak to people. And they used to pass the phone over to me whenever a different client, difficult client called. And I was quite ambitious. As I say, I was quite restless. So at the end of each day, when everyone else disappeared at five o'clock, I'd stay behind and I'd read through my books and I'd do my associateship exams. And I'd stay sometimes till nine o'clock at night. And you know, the only people in the office at nine o'clock at night are the cleaners and the managing director. And he used to come and sit down next to me and ask me what I was doing. And when I explained to him I wanted to get on and do my exams, um, he was interested in that. Two years later, I found myself um, as one of the youngest managing directors of a division of a global financial services company um, working in the city of London. And all the time I was living in the light, all the time I was putting God first. And, you know, he blessed what I was doing. I've met the girl of my dreams. We got married. Uh, We had a little boy called Matthew. I had a six-figure salary. Things were pretty good. But there's a photograph taken of me around about that time. I want to show it to you. I'm not sure that all of you are going to be able to see this. But I want to show you this picture. And I want to show you this picture, not because it's a picture of a nice swimming pool. But that's me reclining in one of those infinity pools. I've got this horribly smug look on my face. And just behind me, if you can see that, just over my head... It's Mount Vesuvius. You know the volcano that erupted in AD 79, destroying Pompeii? Well, in my own head, there was a volcano. Because I'd stopped living in the light. I'd stopped putting God first. I'd stopped reading my little living light. I'd stopped reading my Bible. They were by my bed, collecting dust. And you know, I even think I said to God, God, thank you so much. You've given me a great life. But you know what? I can take it from here now. I, I, I can manage life from now on. Thanks very much for all you've given me, but I'll take it from here. Um, they weren't particularly wise words to say. I just wanted to show you a couple of slides of what life was like, just so you can see what my life and, and my family life was like in those days. I'm not, I'm not going to dwell on that slide very long, but we had nice holidays. We uh, That was Emma, um, girl of my dreams. And... Um, We drove nice cars, both of us. We had these holidays. We had all the trappings. Matthew, who you can see there just on on your left, 
was 11 months old at the time. Uh, and I thought I'd kind of made it in life and I'd pushed God away. We began to notice something strange about Matthew. He wasn't using his right hand and he wasn't meeting his milestones like the other children his age were, were meeting. And I said to Emma, don't you think it's odd that Matthew doesn't use his right hand? And even when we passed him something from his right side, he'd reach over with his left hand and grab it. And she said, oh, no, no, everything's fine. We've got left-handed people in our family. He'll just be left-handed. And then I was driving to work. I had a six-hour commute. We lived up in, in Derbyshire in the north of England, and I caught the train down to London every day. Three-hour journey there, three-hour journey back. I never used to see my family awake during the week. Five days a week I did that. And here I was driving off to the station. I turned the radio on and I heard a, an interview with a retired footballer. He said, we had an 11-month-old daughter and, uh, and she wasn't meeting her milestones. And we noticed she wasn't using her right hand. So we took her to have a consultant's um, diagnosis. And she had this thing called right-side hemiplegia. She'd basically had a stroke. I uh, had limited movement down her right side. It was a form of cerebral palsy. All the day long, I thought about this. And I got home, I said to Emma, Emma, we need to get Matthew uh, a diagnosis. We, we, I'm really worried about him. So we took him to see a consultant, and pretty much straight away, I mean within minutes, the doctor could see that Matthew had a very limited movement all the way down his right side. Stiffness in his leg, very little use of his right arm. And he said, I believe your son has right side hemiplegia. We had a scan, and as I walked into the consultant's office, she'd put up... Um, a picture on the screen of Matthew's brain. It was a brain scan, and I could see this big scar on Matthew's brain, on my son's brain. And I said, what does this mean? And she said, your son has limited movement on his right side. He had a, a bleed on his brain, probably around the time he was born, and he has right side hemiplegia. It's not something he'll recover from. He'll cope with life, but he'll be severely disabled. And as I left the office, it was almost like a throwaway comment. Oh, by the way, your son uh, will go on probably to develop epilepsy at some point in his life. But I wasn't expecting, just a week later, I was holding Matthew. It was a really hot day, and um, the sun was out. Uh, Matthew had a bit of a cold, a high temperature, and his right arm started to jerk. I knew straight away what was happening. Matthew was having a fit, but I didn't know what to do. I did everything wrong. As a father, I just put my arms around him and, and tried to tell him everything would be okay. I should have loosened off his clothing and let him cool down. And he wouldn't stop fitting, so we put him in the car. Uh, and that was wrong too, because there was a traffic jam. We took him back home, phoned the ambulance. Emma, my wife, was on the phone to the ambulance people while I was giving my son mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, because Matthew by now had turned blue, and his lips were a really dark shade of purple. And I honestly thought I was going to lose him. I couldn't feel any breathing on my face when I put my cheek next to him. I'd been taught to do that in the army. So do you know what? I did something for the first time in maybe months. I prayed. Really simple prayer. I just said, God, I don't want to lose my son. Pretty much straight away, around the corner, came my next door neighbour who was a retired surgeon. He'd been shopping, had a couple of bags under his arms, and he came up took over, loosened off Matthew's clothing, calmly told us that everything will be okay. The ambulance arrived and took Matthew away. He didn't die. And you know what? I cannot remember even thanking God for answering that prayer. 
I went into myself. Emma was great. She went online and she researched right-side hemiplegia and got her head around what it would mean. I went into denial. You see, I thought my son would be able to land airplanes. I thought my son was going to play rugby better than I would. All those things a dad wants for his son. And I couldn't come to terms with the fact that my son was severely disabled. I'd been passed over for a promotion as well. And I can remember thinking, I'm 40 years old. My life, um, what what has my life come to? I've got a disabled son. I'm not enjoying my work. I've got this horrible commute. I was at home. I was watching my favorite sport. It was a game of rugby on TV. And for the first time ever, I noticed an advert for a £5 free bet by the side of the pitch. I went upstairs. I got my laptop. Somehow I worked out how to do it. It took me just a couple of minutes. I won that bet. And I wonder what would have happened if I'd lost. I've asked myself this question time and time again. I'm pretty sure, looking back, I would have closed my laptop down and thought, what a waste of time. But I won. And the thoughts that went through my head were, why am I going down to London, six hours travelling every day, when I can stay in the comfort of my house and earn money? I kidded myself and and said, I'm quite good at this. I didn't tell Emma that I'd won that bet when she came home. And I think that's quite significant. Over the course of the next couple of months, I began to place bets on. um, It was all online for me. I didn't used to go to betting shops, but I'd be placing a little bet on sport. And I'd be thinking, oh, this is a bit more fun. The trouble is with me, I'm competitive. I'm a terrible loser. I'm also an optimist. I always think the right outcome's going to happen. Those are not good traits for a gambler. You know, as I go through my, uh, my life at the moment, I meet more and more people and I see people who have issues with, with gambling. And those are common characteristics. I realized I was losing more often than I was winning. And that made me angry. So I went up to my computer. Um, I worked out how much I'd lost over the course of the last few months. It was something like 600, 700 pounds. A tennis match was coming up, and I calculated how much I would need to place one bet on the outcome of that match to win all the money back I'd lost in one go. And then I said, I'll close my account down, because you know this is a waste of time. I needed to ring up the bank to arrange an overdraft to get that £1,000 that I needed. And when I placed that bet, I was shaking. I'd never placed anything like that much more money before. £5 here, £10 there, that was all. I'd stepped over the line. I lost that bet. And the first thing I did was get another £1,000 and place it on the very next tennis match. I was doing something terrible. I was chasing my losses. I phoned up the office probably the following week. And I said, you know, it's really not productive for me driving all the way to the station and then catching a train and coming back every day. I'm wasting time. Why don't you set me up from home? And then I can work from home and be more productive to you. And so they said, yeah, good idea. All of a sudden, I had all my systems at home. And in the spare room of our house, a house that we own jointly, I began to spend more and more time betting. I spent the first two hours of the day doing my work. And then when I'd finished it, I thought, what shall I do next? I spent the day gambling. And I hid everything from my wife. And when you start hiding things, when you start having secrets from the people that you're close to, you have to lie to cover your tracks. I'd never really lied to my wife before. We shared everything. Now I had a secret. 
And I protected that secret from her because I thought if she knows what I'm doing with our family finances, because she trusted me completely, she'll be really cross, she'll be unhappy. So it's okay, I won't worry her with that. I'll just carry on and and I'll win because in my optimistic outlook, I, I thought that I would beat the system. I was packed full of my own stupid pride. I was deluding myself. Because we know if you think about it, the odds are stacked in favor of the table. And if you gamble enough, you will lose. And yet, full of my own pride, I thought I knew better. Emma began to, to notice some changes in me. My, my mood swings would be, when I was winning, I was up here. When I was losing, I was down in the dumps. Because I was losing more often than I was winning, she began to think, oh, is it me? Have I done something to upset him? Is it the fact we live in a town? Is it his job? And when someone came along and, and gave us a really great offer for our house, we accepted that. I had a large sum of money that came into my accounts and we moved to a rental property in the country while we looked for somewhere to live. I was withdrawing as a husband and withdrawing as a father. By now we had another son, Oscar, um, who was born. Um, now they look like angels there, believe me, they're not, but they're lovely. Oscar was born, and you know, as a father, I, I should have been spending more time with him. I should have been involved and engaged with their bath time. I should have been reading them stories at night. Instead, I was making excuses to go off at my computer and try and win back money that I'd lost. Desperate now to cover my tracks. I knew I was going to be find it, found out unless I had a big win. I needed to have a big win because you know what? I'd spent our money. I began to take out loans. One day I was upstairs in, in the spare room on my computer. It was a lovely spring day and I could see Emma walking up the lane about a mile away. She had a spring and a step. And as she came closer to the house and eventually she got to the house, she shouted up at the open window. She said, Justin, I found it. I found the perfect house. Come on, come with me. So off I went to the end of the lane and there was a, a big old Victorian um, wall garden that was there. There was a stately home that had been knocked down between the walls. And I'd often wonder what was behind this big wall. And I went through a little door and I walked into paradise. This beautiful garden with views for miles. And a lovely little cottage in the corner. And the lady that lived there, she wanted to move quickly because she just lost her daughter. She just lost her, her husband, sorry. She wanted to move closer to her daughter. The price she was offering was really good. But I desperately looked round for a way out. And I saw in the corner of the garden... A little pond. It was no more than a puddle. And I said to Emma, look Emma, we can't live here. Matthew might fall in and and drown. And that smile on her face. Her dreams, her hopes. I dashed it. And you know what? I dashed it again and again. Because she'd made her mission to find a home where we would be happy. And I used to turn up and look around the house and, and then I'd say, oh, we can't live here. The, the garden's too big or the garden's too small or, or, or it's too near a main road. Lie upon lie. And each time I was hurting her. See, I couldn't tell her that we couldn't get a mortgage because I'd spent our deposit. I couldn't tell her we couldn't get a mortgage because I was so indebted now to, to banks, to credit card companies and even towards the end of my addiction, payday loan companies. I hid everything. I should have stopped and put my hand up and said, Emma, I need help here. But packed full of my own pride, 
Not only was I pushing my God away, I was pushing away the person I love the most. My wife and my children. One day Emma opened up the, uh, the fridge and there was no food in the house. I had no more income coming in uh, for another week. The only means I had to buy f- food for my family was to use my corporate card for work. So we went to the, the shop and I paid for the groceries on my corporate card, a card I needed for expenses. And then just a couple of weeks later, in fact, no, probably less than that, maybe a couple of days later, I realized that that corporate card worked on my gambling account. When I pressed that button to use my company money to, to pay into my gambling account, I knew I'd ended my career. I knew the eight years that I'd spent in the city building up a reputation was finished. I knew quite possibly that even my marriage would be over. And yet, I was by now quite ill. Whereas at the beginning I'd had complete control over what I was doing and I'd made the decision to gamble. At the end I'd lost control. And I was deluding myself that the only way to get out of this is to have a big win. Borrowing money from friends when I couldn't get any more money from from banks. I lived in quite a horrible world. A world that I had some self-loathing. I couldn't tell my wife because I was scared she'd leave me. I, I, I was pretending to be a person that I wasn't anymore. I was pretending to be the person I had once been. My work found out, of course they would, when the statement came through, but it took them two and a half months. In that two and a half months, I'd been on a stupid gambling spree with my company's money. They called me into the office and the head of HR was there. She asked me to lay out my bank statements and just underline all the transactions that were my own. £27,000 worth of my company's money. Needless to say, I couldn't work there any longer. But as I was driving home from work, basically having been sacked, I was continuing to gamble. It was Wimbledon. I was betting on the tennis. And rather than sit down with my wife at that stage and say, Emma, I need some help. I lied to her. I said, I've left that job. I've got another one to go to. I'm on gardening leave for a while. Now with no income to feed my habit, I began to look around the house for things I could sell. And we had some lovely possessions. We had nice wedding presents. We had bits of silver, some pictures. And I would secretly take away and sell the ones that I thought I could get away with. And when Emma found out or asked me where they were, I'd just lie and say, oh, it got broken and Matthew broke it. I took it in to be cleaned up. My whole life was a lie. What had started out as just a little secret had developed into this full-blown addiction that had complete control over me. I wish I could say that I told my wife Because by not telling her and letting her find out, all that trust that she had for me was lost in one go. We had friends to stay and they found a bank statement. And they confronted her with it. And they said, do you know about this? Bless her. She tried to stand by me. And you know, I I self-excluded myself. Uh, I went upstairs to the computer with Emma. And I said, Emma, I don't ever want to do this again. I'm sorry. Um... I'm going to make the effort to stop. And I went away and I got some help, some counselling. For a couple of weeks, everything was fine. And then I had an email. 
because there's 2,500 online gambling sites that you could bet on now on a laptop if we wanted to. At the moment, we'd have to self-exclude ourselves from every single one. And I want to say that the work that people like Care, Care particularly do in this field has led to a change in the law that's going to come in next year where there will be a one-stop self-exclusion. And I could press one button, one button, and it would have excluded myself from every gambling account. That would have saved my marriage. Because a couple of weeks later, I had this email from another company saying, Justin, have a £50 free bet. And I said, oh, a free bet? That's not really gambling. That'll be okay. I took up that offer of a free bet. And within days, I was right back into my old routine. And this time, Emma could see. And one morning, I woke up, and the house that we lived in, our home, a house that had been full of laughter, even though I was gambling with two young children, was quiet. There was no sound of children's TV or or the boys throwing scrambled egg at each other. There was no smell of coffee. It was just quiet. I knew Emma had taken the boys and she'd left. And do you know what? She was right to leave because I was self-destructing. I was imploding and I was sucking in everyone around me. And she was right to leave to protect the boys. But because of my own stupid pride, rather than getting help at that stage... I said to myself, okay, that's fine. I'll win the money back. I'll show everyone that it's okay, that I've done the right thing. The most precious thing that I owned was the Sword of Honour. Perhaps not the most valuable, um, but it was precious. Awarded to me by the Queen for graduating top of my intake. That sword had pride of place in our house. The boys used to look at it, uh, and maybe one day I would have handed it over to, to Oscar or someone, and they could have given it to their boys. But I took that sword into a shop and after three attempts of walking in, then walking out, I sold the sword of honor for 200 pounds. That sword represented everything that had ever been good in my life. And I cried when I left the shop because I knew what I'd done. I lost that 200 pounds that day. The next morning I came to my senses and I I phoned up the shop and I said, I've made a terrible mistake. I gave you something to sell. I, I need to have it back. The shop owner said, we've sold it. We've just sold it now. We've got no record of where it's gone. There were very dark times those few months, those maybe two months of my life. At the end of 2012, I began to imagine what life would perhaps be like for my children if I wasn't around anymore. I was living off a sack of mouldy potatoes. I begrudged spending anything if it wasn't on gambling. I couldn't afford to heat the house. I hadn't paid rent for five months. And then there was a knock at the door. My mum and my brother, my dad, they came up to see me and they said, I'm about to be evicted. My father-in-law has paid off the rent arrears. He wants you out. You can walk the streets or you can go back to Kent, have a spare room in mum's house and try and get some recovery. So over the next hour, I walked around my house with a black bin liner of stuff. And I put those bits and pieces of possessions that I had left, some clothes, some pictures, into my black bin liner. I was a broken man. And in front of my mum and my dad and my brother, who'd been there to see me be awarded that sort of honour, I was humiliated. But I needed to be. I had to be broken. Because it was only when I was humiliated that, that 
my pride went out the window and I did something that I should have done a long time before. I got down on my knees and I prayed. A really simple prayer. I just said, God, forgive me for what I've done. Please come back into my life. Please be number one again. And please, if you can, fix me. That date was November 2012. It's the 6th of November. It's also the last day that I I ever placed a bet. I do believe that, that Christ healed me. Pretty much instantly. At first on the outside. Uh, and if any of you know of anyone who has any form of an addiction, please, this is what my mother did for me. She showed me love. She showed me care. She didn't judge me. She didn't condemn me. But we had rules. And one of the first things that I had to do was download a bit of software called K9. The letter K, the number 9. It blocked all adult content on my computer. And I knew if I wanted to log into a gambling site, it would have sent an email to my mum. It helped me. It was one of the blocks that I put in place. And also being away from my home where I'd been gambling, I was away from all my triggers. So I had a new start. A new start which I felt my creator had given me. I had to replace all the time that I spent because I would be gambling every day, often through the night. Over the course of that three years, I'd lost £750,000. I had to replace that with something else. My self-esteem was so low. I knew that God had forgiven me, but I was struggling to forgive myself. But I began to get back into God's Word, to read the Bible every morning, to read the Bible at night, to read Living Light again. I began to come back into the light. And in the light, there was no room for gambling. There was no room for my secret habits. I also, with my self-esteem being quite low, I I got myself back into exercising. I swam competitively when I was younger uh, and I signed up to swim the channel. It's something I'd always wanted to do. Um, You have to book your channel swim a year or two in advance. So I had a year and a half um, to prepare for that. But the routine of swimming, of, of doing something wholesome, of doing something good, for my body, actually helped me a huge amount. And now with my priorities in order, I could breathe again. I went to see a debt advice um, organization, a charity run from my church, um, Tunbridge Baptist Church. And they got my debtors, my creditors off my back. They, they, they phoned them all. They wrote letters to them all. They stopped ringing me. They stopped hassling me. I had £73,000 worth of debt, but they took all of that over And dealt with my creditors. Now I could really breathe. I could see some light at the end of the tunnel. And it wasn't instant. It wasn't immediate. It wasn't suddenly all my problems are solved. It was gradual. It was slow. But every day I was gambling free was a better day. And every day God gave me something back. When I became debt free uh, in January 2015. I signed up as as a debt advisor. Uh, and I now go into the charity once a month and, and help them out and see people, many of whom are struggling with addictions, but many of whom just don't have the money to live. And it makes me feel so humble when I see someone who is in financial difficulty because nothing to do with their own behavior. And I think about how my own behavior led me to get myself into trouble. And that made me want to help. And I wanted to reach out to people. And I went along to a Gamblers Anonymous meeting. And I suddenly discovered I wasn't the only person in this world 
to have a gambling addiction. I wasn't the only person to be as stupid as I had been. It's very isolating being involved in an addiction, particularly something like gambling, which is not a well-understood addiction. And I suddenly realized I wasn't the only one. Uh, And when you start to realize that there are other people suffering as well, you start to understand why you can reach out maybe and help them. I began to get frustrated with saying uh, at Gamblers Anonymous, a God of my own understanding or my higher power. I actually wanted to say God. So I I began to um, look around for Christ-based recovery courses. And I found one in England called the Recovery Course, which is a 15-week course, um, not just for Christians, but absolutely guided by Christian spiritual principles and follows the 12-step recovery program. Uh, I now run a recovery course from my church in Tunbridge Tunbridge and Tunbridge Wells. And we've seen about 300 people through recovery, many of whom become Christians for the first time. You see, the most amazing thing, Anyone who has an addiction, anyone who has a secret habit, anyone who's doing something that's destructive has some inner hurt, some pain. Maybe something from childhood, maybe a broken relationship, maybe a situation in their life, maybe some stress. Something that they're escaping from. And and our addiction becomes our shield. It becomes our protection. It could be issues around eating. It could be issues around pornography, around money, as well as alcohol and drugs and, and gambling. Those things are our way of escaping from the pain that we feel. Any form of recovery that only deals with the outward signs, the physical things, isn't getting to the heart of the issue. And the wonderful thing about Christ is when he comes in, when we let him in, because I didn't, I pushed him away. When we let him in, he comes and he fixes us from the inside. I didn't even know what my inner issues were. If you'd asked me, I'd have said, oh, I don't believe in that psychological mumbo jumbo. I just got myself involved in a habit. Actually, I was carrying some pain. And I want to share with you how God dealt with that too. Because I think when I prayed that prayer, he fixed me on the outside. But he had work to do on the inside. I had pushed God away. And I'd walked a thousand steps away from him. But I only had to take one step back. And he was there. But you know, that one step back is an important step. Because God won't recover for us. And if you know people, loved ones that are involved in any form of addiction, you can't recover for them either. They need to take that one step back. I wanted to tell my story because I was getting fed up with the, this barrage of advertising that we get at the moment. Um, and I'm going to share some figures with you um, in a minute. But I wanted to share um, my story. I wanted people to know that there is a downside to gambling. So um, I shared my story uh, with a newspaper, the Daily Mail, on the 17th of August 2013. Five million people woke up and read this story about an ex-army officer who squanders that money and threw away his family. And do you know what? When I opened that page that morning, my whole body screamed out and I said, Oh no, what have I done? Because now the whole world knows what an idiot I am. And yet, that's when Christ set me free on the inside. Because suddenly, all the way through my life, I realized I'd been pretending. I'd been driven by this desire to succeed so people could like me. So people would love me more. And when I wasn't the best at something, I used to pretend. And that put enormous pressure on me. And maybe was one of the reasons why I had to feel that I had to gamble my own way out of my problem and not put my hand up. 
But now, when people suddenly realise this, I was free. Set free to stand up to the whole world and say, I am Justin. I'm flawed as an individual. I'm far from perfect. But I am loved by God. And I'm forgiven and fixed by his grace. And there is nothing I can ever do that will make him love me more. And there is nothing I can do that will make him love me any less. And that's true for all of us. We can't earn God's love. And he won't take it away. When I suddenly realized that, I began to think, I can live in the light. I can live in truth because I don't have to pretend. That article led to quite a lot of stuff. I went on TV and the Lorraine program a couple of times. Um, Channel 4 and Channel 5 wanted to do documentaries and live debates. And I'm often on the, the radio. And Stephen Nolan interviewed me around about that time. And I don't think he knew what to make of me, whether to laugh at me or, or to feel sorry. And I didn't care. I just wanted people to know the truth. And I'm going to share some statistics with you in a, in a bit. Also, around about that time, there was um, an encouragement to tell my story. So I sat down and began to write my story, um, Tells I Lose, which I think some of you have read. Um, And as I started to write, I began to cry. And I thought, oh, oh, you know what, this is wrong. It's not meant to be like this. So I phoned my editor and and I said, I'm doing this all wrong. I, I, I can't see the screen because I keep having tears in my eyes. And she said, no, no. You've got to do that. You've got to take your readers back to the place of hurt. If you stand back too far and view your life objectively, they won't understand the truth. She said, writing is is like sitting at your keyboard and opening up a vein. And that's how it felt. Tales I Lose is is a book which which for quite a while was number one for its genre on, on Amazon. Uh, and it just tells the story for, for everyone, not just Christians. And I, I don't use Christian language. It's written in a, a secular label, a lion, um, because I want people to know the truth. I don't hide the fact that I got down on my knees and prayed. I don't hide the fact that, that my healing, I believe, comes 100% from the grace of God. But I share it in language which people understand. And a couple of months ago, I wrote a story. Um, I wrote the book published the book um, One Day at a Time, which is my story written for Christians. And it's about all kinds of addictions. And I have to say that there aren't any of those books available in the bookshop. Um, but I'm sure you can you get a copy if you're interested in the story. Um, but that book then opened up more fields, the speaking um, as well as the writing, because I really want to share my story. And it's actually not that easy standing up, looking at you lovely folk and, and telling you what an idiot I've been and how much I've lost. So do you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to tell you some of the wonderful things that God has given back to me over the last three years. My relationship with my boys is really, really strong. It's stronger than ever. Uh, I pushed them away, not because I didn't love them, but because I was so engaged with what I was doing. Now, when I, when I spend time with my boys, it's quality time. Matthew's doing well. Um, he's off to a special school in, uh, in October. Um, he struggles because he's now had a diagnosis for autism as well, which is what manifests itself most with his education. But he's eight years old now. I've just spent three weeks on holiday with the boys and also with my wife, Emma. I wish I could stand up here and tell you that we were reunited and we've got no problems and everything was fine. 
My story is an honest, truthful story. And sadly, last year, uh, we got divorced. Uh, I'd written the divorce papers um, just after uh, she, she sent them over to me and I signed them. Because everything she was accusing of me was right. And I couldn't deny that. But she was lovely. She held off and didn't hand them to her solicitor. And we tried to get back together. She moved all the way down from the north of England and came to live with us again. And for seven months, we were a family. But because I had betrayed her trust, because I hadn't sat down and talked to her, we just weren't able to get that trust back. Now, maybe God's uh, not finished with the story. I'm certainly keeping the door open. Um, But I do want you to know there are consequences of our sins and certainly mine. By the way, that sword came back. And do you know what day it came back? God is so good. That came back, FedEx to me, on Christmas Eve. Someone found it online the day before, and they Googled my name. If you Google Justin Larkin or Justin Reese Larkin, you can come up with all sorts of stuff. And he went to one of the newspapers that had run my story, and he said, I think I found someone's sword here. They phoned me up. And it was so lovely because I just waved the children off. Um, they were going up to be with um, Emma's parents over Christmas. And actually, I was feeling a bit sorry for myself. And then this thing arrived. It was so lovely. And I think I spent the whole of Christmas Day just looking at it. Um, the conference, the, the recovery course I was talking about, um, it's kind of got a bit bigger now. God's really behind this. I think God wants to set us all free from secret habits. Some of those things I was talking about. He doesn't want us to be slaves to anything. To have freedom to make those choices, to choose not to indulge our habits. So now um, there's a charity called Recovery 2, um, which is something that I- I'm involved in. Um, we, we're doing a conference for the first time when all the churches who run recovery courses and all the churches who want to run recovery courses are going to come along and have a, a time of celebration. We're going to resource them up and we're going to spread the word. Because I see recovery through Christ as the only true effective way of really finding that freedom. Um, Oh, the channel. Um, Do you want to hear? Well, um, I set off on the 7th of September 2014. It was a lovely flat, calm day. You can see how calm it is. You can also see a ferry there. I chose to do it. It wasn't my choice. My pilot told me, today's the day we're going across. It was flat, it was calm, it was okay, it was warm. But because I went on the day with the highest tidal reach, I went through the ferry lane and two of the busiest shipping lanes in the world. But thankfully I had my pilot there to guide me. And all the way through the day, I followed him, I stayed right next to him. You can see my swim, I started off at 9.30 in the morning. That's me at 6.43pm. I've still got quite a way to go. Can you see that that part of France is sticking out there? That's Cap Grenet. Now, the idea is that you land on that tip of Cap Grenet. It's only 21 miles, actually, 33 kilometers as the crow flies. But as you can see, I didn't exactly swim like a crow. I kind of went quite wide. Um, But that's where the tide was taking me. Everything was fine. It was still light. And suddenly, I saw the coast of France. And I thought, hey, this is great. I can do this. I'm 10 hours in, my, my shoulders are okay, and I can see France, and, and do you know what? I don't need my pilot anymore, because I, I can just swim straight for the coast, I can see where I'm going. And then it got dark, and I began to swim further and further away from my pilot, because what I was doing, thinking I knew best, I'd line myself up with a light on the coast, and I tried to swim for that. 
he was setting the boat off against a four-knot tide, which was going in the opposite direction to a 14-knot wind now, which meant waves. So by aiming straight for this light, I was actually swimming to Belgium. And they were calling me over, kept calling me over, but I just thought I knew best. My shoulders began to get heavy. And in the waves, every time I turned my head, I was taking on water, salt water, which meant my throat was closing up. It it meant that my tongue was swelling up and I was finding it difficult to breathe. And I was feeling the cold for the first time. And then suddenly this light came on at the side of the boat. And I thought, what are they doing? Are they fishing at 11 o'clock at night? Why are they doing that? And then it dawned on me what they were trying to do. They were shining a light from the boat down into the spot of water by the side of the boat where they wanted me to swim. They'd given up shouting over to me. And this was their last hope of bringing me back. When I realised what they were doing, I made the effort and I swam back to that pool of light. And suddenly when I got there, I got shelter in the lee of the boat from the wind. And now there were still waves there. But when I turned my head, I could actually see them this time. And so I just ducked my head. I wasn't taking on water. I had a triple strength carbohydrate feed. Boy, that was good. And they encouraged me. And two hours later, I landed on the coast of France. And do you know what? That is like my life. When I go off and I do my own thing, when I indulge my secret habits, when I live in the darkness, things grow drastically wrong. But when I live in the life, the Lord blesses what I do. Um, I want a question session and I'd like to have about maybe 10 minutes for questions but I just want to share a few things with you I'm going to go through these quite quite quickly these might be quite shocking for some of you um, but do you know that three quarters of all adults in the UK gamble and I'm including the lottery for, for a lot of people scratch cards are a massive issue It's only a very small percentage of people. I believe the percentage is actually higher over here in Northern Ireland than it is over there. But it's only a small percentage. Industry will say it's a tiny percentage, you know, 0.9% or maybe 2%, whatever that is. But that is a large number of people who have a problem with gambling. It's that 550,000 people who have a severe problem. Marriages being broken up. People going to prison to feed their habit. Lives being taken because of this. It's too many. There's a further three and a half million people who, because of their gambling habits, are at risk. That's too many as well. The industry doesn't really take much interest. It's getting an enormous amount of um, profit from this. It's a £3.5 billion industry in the UK. And the anti-gambling lobby is so strong, which is why I love it when these people from CARE and other organisations, the Salvation Army and others, do great work with government to lobby for change. Because when the laws were changed over there in 2007, and I know your gambling laws go back to 1985, but in 2007, the laws were changed. And since that time, TV advertising has gone up in real terms by 1,300, I think it's actually now 1,400%. That means 4% of every advert on TV is a gambling advert. If you watch a big sporting event, the only adverts are gambling adverts. And you get random advertising on social media and timelines and all sorts. 
Smartphones and online sites are dangerous because they're easy to use. It's easy to hide. It's the 16 to 24-year-old age group that are the most adept at smartphone technology. And it's probably no surprise to you if I tell you that the 16 to 24-year-old age group are the ones that call the gambling helplines, the GamCare helplines, more than any other age group. What we're doing is storing up trouble for future generations. Just one quick story I want to finish with. My son, Matthew, age seven, loved to play on, on the iPad. And his favorite game is something called Roller Coaster Tycoon. You build up a fun fair and people come and you get credits. One morning I came down, he was playing Roller Coaster Tycoon. But the screen was fruit machines. He was spinning a fruit machine. I, I snatched it away from him. I thought I passed on all my genes to him in one go. It turns out, with a little bit of research, that the software company that own Rollercoaster Tycoon are a gambling company based in Las Vegas. And I believe we are normalizing our children for future behavior patterns, which is so dangerous. There's no compulsory education in schools at the moment. I believe there should be. I believe there should also be a watershed on this advertising. And there are lots of other wonderful things that CARE are looking into doing as well. Okay. I'm not going to tell you uh, all the things that, that secret habits do to you. I've told you some of them in me, and, and you can recognize them in you if you know that you have a habit or if you know someone else who has a habit too. But ultimately, and most importantly from my perspective, is a secret habit will block your relationship with your creator. And when it does that, you're no longer accountable. Really briefly... What can you do about it? And what can you do about it if you know of someone who's got an issue with this? Well, fundamentally, you need to talk about this. You need to be accountable. The Bible says in James we should be accountable to each other as Christians. And yet, it's the church that these things are quite difficult to talk about. I'm not just talking about gambling. I'm, I'm talking about pornography. I'm talking about other habits that we have that we know are dangerous. That we know are damaging our relationship with ourselves and with the ones we love. We need to be accountable to it. We need to replace our habit. Do you know, someone just told me, um, if you can imagine someone with a, with a habit, it's like a dog with a bone, you can either try and pull that bone out of their mouths, and all that happens is the dog will latch on tighter. So if you're looking to help someone, don't do that. You can give them a kick up the backside. You can tell them, if you don't do this, I'm going to do something even more drastic. And for a time, that might work. But eventually the dog always will go back to the bone. What needs to happen is we need to replace that bone, either ourselves or as people we love helping them, with something more wholesome, something better. And thanks be to Christ. As Christians, we can replace that bone with a relationship, a deeper relationship with our creator. I, I want to have a good, good five, um, maybe seven minutes of questions. Um, if you just put your hand up, we'll shout the question out, and I'll try and repeat it on here so that everyone else can hear it. Um, and then I think, um, Tim, you're going to come up and just finish off, aren't you? Okay. Do you know what? Before I do questions, there's one thing I'd like to do. I'd like us all to close our eyes, if that's okay. I'd like you to keep them closed. Um, if there's anything that I've said that maybe applies to you, or if you know of someone particularly who has an issue, I'd like you just to raise your hand. Okay. Thank you. Um, put your hands. Put your hands down. What I want to do is just really briefly pray with you, or 
pray with you for the person that you've raised your hand for. I want to pray that today is, is a start of, of a new life, a life of freedom. So, Father, we just come before you now. I want to thank you for uh, the story that you've given me. I want to thank you that you are a God who loves us despite what we do. I want to thank you that you are a God of new beginnings. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you that you forgive us. I want to ask now that you would bring your forgiveness on on all of us for doing those things that we know hurt you, that hurt others and hurt ourselves. Father, I just ask that you would help us to draw a line in the sand today and move forward and, and grasp that freedom in your name. Amen. Okay, any questions for me on, on anything? On gambling, on addiction, whatever it might be. Yes. Yeah, that's a great, great question. The question was that my talk today has been focused a bit on gambling, um, but do the principles um, apply to anyone who's struggling with any form of addiction? Um, and do you know what? If I say the word addiction in church, people go, oh, we don't have any addicts in our congregation. Immediately they'll think of homeless people. Um, but I wasn't homeless. I had a six-figure salary. I had a lovely family. How did I let what I do call an addiction come between me and my, my relationship with, with God. And the wonderful thing about Christ-based recovery is there are principles that apply equally for all kinds of addictions. There's principles that are things like getting rid of denial. You know when we say, oh, it's okay, I don't have a problem. It, I'm, it's just that I, something I do. It's a habit. Everyone else is doing it. Even when others around you can see there's a problem. Or maybe you know you have a problem and you've hidden it from other people, but because you've hidden it, you can still live in denial. You've got to get rid of denial. Denial is, is massive. And that applies for anything we do. The key thing is to recognize it. And, and I truly believe that when we as Christians live in the light, i.e. Uh, we have a wholesome, healthy relationship with God, we're regularly listening to him through his word, we're regularly talking to him through our prayer time, we're, we're taking part in the congregation, uh, in church, we're, we're living life in the light. When you do that, you can't have a habit that you don't know is a problem. And so that's fundamental. Um, and there are so many other ways of, of, of understanding addiction and dealing with it. And they do apply to all other things. I think the key for me is to be accountable. Find a Christian friend and talk to them every week. Great question. Yes. Yeah, brilliant. Okay, so the, the question there was... Um, the, the key is what, what can we do as Christians for the younger generation? If that is the generation, particularly around gambling, where there's a, a problem. Well, the good news is that we do have people in here from care who are specifically targeting government to be able to look at reform. Um, at the moment, um, gambling sits in the Department of Culture. It's almost like got a, a, an endorsement for being something that's okay. Um, it really, really isn't. Um, so we need to look at reform of the law. The key thing is getting new research through to we lift the lid on this issue. Uh, I do think we need to have um, specific education in schools. There is for drugs and alcohol. There isn't for gambling. Uh, and we need to look at maybe some of the specific issues about advertising within a watershed and also maybe to reduce um, uh, the horrible FOBTI machines, the fixed odds betting terminals that are in all our gambling shops. Uh, they are horrible, more addictive than any other form of gambling, and, and they are not right at all. Um, at the moment, I think in this country, you can, you can put 
Is it 40, 50 pounds a spin uh, every 20 seconds? In the UK, it's 100, sorry, over in the mainland, it's one, 100 pounds every 20 seconds. It's not right. And those are issues that we really need to, to resolve. My heart is for young people. That's where the problem lies for the future. Okay. Um, I reckon by my watch, we've got two minutes, have we? I'm going to have maybe one more question, and then I'm going to hand over to Tim. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But the question there was um, the difference between a, a habit and an addiction and maybe an illness. I think it really helps people um, who think they still have a habit to maybe, when they start recovering, view it as an illness. And when I say illness, it's something that has control over them. What I mean by that is that they have lost control over what they do. Now, 30% of all those who drink have some form of dependency on alcohol. Um, And for many, that doesn't cause them any problems. But for others, it's causing broken relationships and and damage, um, productivity and and health and money and everything, everything else. What is an addiction? And that's why I try and call it a secret habit. Um, and it might not even be secret. It's something that's causing a problem. And if it's causing a problem in your relationships and in your life, it is not good. And it's something that, that really we need to shine a, life on, a light on as, as Christians. It really helps. When I talk about um, me being quite ill in my addiction, when you know about the things that I did, and there's sadly, uh, there are lots of other stories I could have shared with you, particularly around the, the way that I treated my, my children in terms of not giving them the affection and the time that they needed. I, I was really ill. I had no control over what I was doing. The problem is, if someone who doesn't understand addiction, looking on the outside, they might think, well, that's just a way of, of you know, avoiding all responsibility. So... It, it's difficult. It goes back to denial. We need to, to stop there because they've all finished and I'll be in trouble. Um, Tim, over to you, my friend. <laughs>